Say It With Guitars. I'm your host, Pete Cornelius. Each episode, I'll be digging deep and getting to hang with some of Australia's finest guitar pickers, songwriters, producers, collectors, and makers. I look forward to bringing you these fun conversations and I hope you enjoy Say It With Guitars. Hey guys, thanks very much for tuning in to another episode and really appreciate the feedback and the comments for our previous episode with Jeff. And a big thanks to the listeners for giving me some feedback and just sort of touching base, saying they tuned in. It's really great to hear people enjoying the podcast, which is the reason I do it. Also, I've been looking into the liner notes of that Tom Waits record I referenced for the guitar tone that I was really into. It's on Swordfish Trombone, and the guitar player at the time was Fred Tackett who's uh, also spent a bit of time with Little Feet and Bob Dylan. So yeah, there you go, Fred Tackett. Check it out, folks. Tom Waits, Swordfish Trombone. Oh, and the song was called Gin Soak Boy. Before we crack into today's show, I'd like to shout out to our sponsor, Mr. Billy Tarrant from Tarrant Guitars. Billy's an amazing luthier and he makes some real sweet instruments. I'm lucky enough for him to have built me a double O size acoustic guitar which I've dragged all around the country and it's sounding better than ever. So yeah, check out tarrantguitars.net.au. Tessie's one-stop custom workshop for custom-made guitars, all guitar repairs and services. Let's get into the show. Quite possibly the most joyous blues singer, finger picker and purveyor of good voodoo, please let me introduce to Say It With Guitars today's guest, Fiona Boys. Fiona, how you going? I'm good. How are you going, Pete? Yeah, I'm going really good. Very well. How's things uh, in your neck of the woods? Well, it's uh, it's cold and wet in the northern rivers, um, which is where uh, we're, we're, we've been getting used to wet lately with all the flooding, but the cold's not so welcome. I <laughs> <laughs> can always warm up, you know. You can always throw a log on the fire. You know? Spoken like a true Tasmanian. <laughs> yeah, you got to <laughs> indulge in the in the cold in the off season. Yeah. Yeah, I was just saying before the show started, I went for a little surf this morning and the water was actually warmer than the air. So I think the air temperature was about 9 or 10 degrees. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's cold. I, I it's remember winter. actually, the, that must have been the last time I was in Tassie, was uh, maybe Devonport, Devonport Jazz Festival and I saw people yeah. surfing the mouth of the river there. Yes. And, I, and some of them were surfing, it was freezing. And people were surfing. Some of them even had crash helmets on because the break there is not only do you have the 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 elements to deal with, but it's actually in the mouth of the river, quite near large submerged rocks. <laughs> yes, and there's a big so spirit was, of Tasmania that comes in there. You don't want to hit that either. I did, and I actually took some footage of that to post to the Northern Rivers surfing <laughs> community. So, look, you, you know, you need to know some people are more serious than you. Yeah, harden up your <laughs> lot. You got it easy. Harden up. Yeah. <laughs> so how long have you been up the Northern Rivers? I think last time we got to hang out, you were in Canberra maybe. Yes, or... well, we went we went from Canberra to uh, Gippsland in Victoria for a couple yep. of years. I've actually been in uh, in the Northern Rivers in a gorgeous town called Gamba, about mm-hmm. an hour and a bit south of Byron, um, for about six years now, and it's the longest we've been anywhere. 
but it's funny you should ask because we will be on the move um, in a couple of months um, heading to uh, Bega. So we're heading ah, a bit further south. Cheese land. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so it will be sad to leave Yamber. It's been a gorgeous place to be, but just um, for various personal reasons and and because of uh, things have been very difficult in the Northern Rivers for, for rentals and, and things like that since the flooding or it's increasingly been a problem in the regions. So um, that's what's moving us on. How did you guys go in the floods? You didn't didn't get too damaged or you, your community was okay? Or uh, It had quite a profound effect on the community and it continues to do so. Um, you know, everybody's still sort of pitching in and, um, and and doing fundraisers. We did a little fundraiser here just with some local musicians um, and, and raised over $10,000, which was great. Oh, nice. But the need has been really quite profound. Here in Yamba, um, we're quite used to being flooded. It's a flood-prone area, but it's about 18 k's from the highway to the town, only one road in and out, and yeah. it traditionally floods about halfway. So we you often get cut off for a day or two if it floods. but And that's happened a few times since we've been here. But this time was it actually flooded in town, which um, knowing some of the locals who've come from foundational families here, as far as I know, that's not ever happened before. Yeah. So it was knee-deep outside Coles and I did sandbag our back door. Yep. Um, we're right opposite an arm of the river, so it was coming in and out at high tide. It come halfway up the driveway at high tide, and then it'd go down, and you could wow. you get out again. Yeah. Um, but the main the main thing is being cut off was the um, the ancillary things that happened then, like the no, the, literally walking into Coles. There's one sort of big supermarket, and there was nothing on the shelves because yep. no trucks could get in. The highway was closed for an hour in either direction. Yeah. So yeah, big big stuff. Yeah, that's pretty dramatic. Um, and it, even even during the the pandemic, I think seeing supermarket shelves empty, you know, everyone doing the panic buy business, and um, I, I think it's been a good little, I wouldn't say wake up, but it's it's been a good you know incentive to go out and be a bit more self you know sustainable, like have some veggies in the backyard or maybe go and. You know, be a bit more prepared, mm. or not say prepared, but just like live life to your means, and sort of if you can be a bit more self-sustainable in that regard. You know, yeah. When everyone was saying, "Isn't it crook?" Um, you know, or you know, my income's been cut. You just go, "Well, it's apart from the fact that you can't gig. It's like welcome to the world of a musician." <laughs> what <laughs> yeah, I what's... what I call the musician's life is, you know. I, I remember years ago actually having an accountant um, who, who was going to do my tax or help me and he just looked at me when I gave him all the figures and he just said, how do you live? And I said, <laughs> well, you know, clearly not like you, I, you know, not with, with 2.5 children in a double-storey house somewhere yep. in the burbs. But, I mean, I actually call it um, financial levitation, but I, I, I think that's also something that, is endemic to the world of the arts and for people who are creatives. I mean, when I think it's tough being a musician at times, I think, well, it could be worse. I could be a sculptor or a poet. <laughs> <laughs> I could be yeah, in, the, in the jazz genre. Those, those guys are doing it hard too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe can we, can we start with a little bit of a background, Fiona? Um, I've had a little bit of research 
I've taken a few notes of what you've been up to, but it's better to hear it from from your perspective. So you didn't start playing guitar till you were a bit later, till you were 26, is that right? Yeah, I I played clarinet when I was a kid. You know, I did mm. the, you know, um, the, 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 the recorder, a recorder, a couple of years of piano when I was really little. And, and all those, I think, I think it's fabulous having having music um, in schools and exposing kids to whatever instruments. It's nothing will be wasted because I think um, you get some really good basic grounding. Um, I I played clarinet in the first few years of high school and I actually had it to a pretty good standard. But again, the idea that music should be joyful, although I was quite confident on the instrument for, for the stage I was at, um, it. Uh, it was like I, I had to skip a class from my regular um, classwork to go to the music um, lesson. And I just kept getting the next bit of Debussy for the next exam, which, you know, looking back on it for a clarinet player, maybe if I had had a chance to play um, in uh, a New Orleans jazz ensemble or, you know, something that was... Uh, more collaborative and more joyful and, you know, because I couldn't play the instrument unless I had yeah. um, music in front of me. I couldn't jam. So to me that was that was the true joy then of learning instrument by ear. You know, I didn't, I, I, so I, I dropped, I, I did the curious thing that I think women often do and hopefully do less these days, which is when you get to teenagehood and it's not very cool, you end up following boys around, watching them play guitars and stuff. Yeah. Um, clarinet wasn't very cool, so <laughs> I dropped that and just, you know, watched the guys play. Um, I got to college and became a huge blues fan. Um, I was lucky in my orientation week to discover that there was a folk and blues club on campus where I was studying graphic design. Cool, yeah. So through that, suddenly I was exposed to some real, like the the, the president of the Blues Society, um, Kim Windsor, who later became a long-term partner for many years, uh, was very keen on early blues music. So my first exposure to all this um, very, you know, uh, traditional blues documentary recordings from the 20s and 30s. Yeah, so unlike a lot of people sort of that stuff. fall in love with rock and yep. Roots. You know, I went. I started with the Roots. Became a blues fan. Lots of bands playing in Melbourne. Melbourne's always been great for for music. So lots of bands playing where you could go out most nights of the week and see blues, live blues. You can yeah. see acts coming in from America. So I'm a fan for years, and then finally, at one point, I decided actually I want to, I want to just borrow a guitar and have a go at trying to play this music I love myself. Baby got trouble, ain't got no sense. You ain't got no money, you can't pay rent. Well, he ain't a doctor, yeah, but he can operate. My baby ain't a teacher, but he can educate.
That's great. Yeah, it does seem like Melbourne was a great hotspot for not only local performers, but yeah, for interstate or in like international. Uh, you know, like you hear lots of stories of people seeing maybe like Lightning Hopkins, or maybe they might have saw Sunny Terry Brownie McGee, that sort of stuff. Like they. Yes, yeah, Terry Brown McGee, and then later on at the corner place, you know, Charlie Musselwhite, um, yeah. Little Ed, the Imperials, yep. uh, you know, all sorts of people came out, and there was often quite I guess a lot, a lot of people from that alligator sort of record eighties yeah. kind of blues boom. Yeah, 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 there was, and and you know, I think you know, although there's a lot of competition to live music, and there's a lot of discussion culturally about you know, the shrinking of live events and the pandemic has made that worse. But um, I think I think Melbourne still is a good town for music. I know certainly um, it's always hard to make a living, but, you know, <laughs> you can actually, um, I think, put together a really eclectic band and still find a gig for it. <laughs> you know? Yes. And yeah. I think, you know, my long-term drummer, Mark Grundon, who, you know, who played with... Bad Boys Bad Acardi, you can put a, it was a drumming ensemble and yet they had a long-term residency. You know, if if someone says to you, I'm putting together a Tibetan throat singing ensemble, you'd go, yeah, you'd still probably get a gig for it in Melbourne. Yep, you'd find the right pub and the crowd would roll up and yeah, you'd you have a great night. <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah, Melbourne does seem like, it's like it still does seem like a very happening, happening city full of creative types. It's great. Um, I think Hobart's I think getting, also... Uh, Sorry. I was just going to say, I think Hobart, since um, the creation of that Mona Museum, uh, the art scene mm-hmm. down here has really gone bananas. It's been so well supported. And like you said, you know, there's diversity now. It's not just, you know, we play yeah. this sort of music. It's like, oh, anything's welcome. And yeah, in, and that's what's been great about that Mona itself. They, they do music a lot, they a lot of live performance. And I think they almost encourage you to get it a little bit off the mainstream. I actually, Mona is definitely on my wish list. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about that a lot more um, because it, it, I think it, it's it's been a long time, you know, between drinks for visits down south and, um, you know, I, I just, I love, I love art as well as music. So it's been interesting during the pandemic that those um some of those threads, which were already happening, you know, I have um, have come together, you know, kind of exploring my own versions of Mississippi-style folk art and doing all sorts of things, having to create, you know, little video clips and YouTube yeah. channels, you know. Yeah. I think everybody tried to be as cunning as they could to keep their creativity alive and to, you know, find outlets when we were all in lockdown. For a while there, yeah. I was going to ask you about your artwork. So you've, I've noticed you've been doing a lot of um, lino prints, and you've been painting a lot of the cigar box guitars that Steve's making. Um, yeah. So you guys are getting, yeah, very creative at home. It's cool. Um, so does that? Do you reckon that artistic thing spurs from your college days? You said you did an arts. Was it a degree or what did you do it? Like, yeah, that- back in the day, it was a diploma of graphic design um, right. at, at Swinburne in Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, and it, and it was, it was funny because I did work in graphic design or, you know, in um, various, you know, um, settings. Um, my last gig as a, as a grapho was for Lonely Planet, having gone off and done a year of travelling internationally. When I got back, 
um, I ended out, you know, working for a production house. I worked for an advertising agency at the beginning. You know, I sort of worked out pretty quickly that I wasn't cut out <laughs> for the cut and thrust of advertising, which is where, you know, so many commercial artists go. Um, and I didn't do a lot of art for myself, although I've always had a keen appreciation for it. And I, in, you know, the last eight or ten years, I had a chance to increasingly tour internationally and um, it was fantastic some of the tours I've done in Europe because, you know, not, not only would um, you get to play to very appreciative uh, audiences in some of those places, but often you could have a chance to, to dig deep into some local art and culture and architecture yeah. while you were there, you know. So, like, yep. to finally get a gig somewhere like uh, Vienna and go, I've got a day off. I'm going to go and see the Gustav Klimt and the, you know, it, it, wonderful, you know. And it, so there's been those experiences along with um, repeated visits to places like Clarksdale, Mississippi, where you have a lot of traditional musicians who, who are both artists and musicians and it kind of is, um, you have to explain it a bit here in Australia, but but over there in a lot of those kind of places it's, it's um it's it's not unusual at all to have people who who make their own instruments and decorate them and 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 do folk art as well as play play blues you know so yeah it's um and I, and I figure that um it, it's all coming from the same wellspring and it kind of um and and it and there again again nothing is wasted so when you you if you kind of live by your wits and creativity, yeah, it's it becomes something that's not a career as much as it's vocational. It's like you can't help it; you have to do it. Um, and at times, you might find that you're a little bit stuck. You haven't written a song for a while, but you have been building and painting cigar box guitars or or yeah. something. And yeah. or, or you know, for example, the cigar box guitars, which has been a recent um sort of love affair I've had you know I started off as an acoustic country blues finger picker and that still informs everything I do and I'm still a finger picker even on electric but then moving to electric and then you know before I played started into playing cigar boxes and exploring them I didn't even really play slide and now it's become a bit of a signature thing but you know if you look <laughs> yeah. back on it I've yep. over a 30-year career or whatever. I've actually only played slide in the last seven, wow. six, seven years. Yep. I was focusing on acoustic finger picking, which is a very intricate style where, where you're trying to do bits of bass line and bits of rhythm guitar and bits of lead and sing. You know, you're trying to be the one-person band. Absolutely. So then it was a huge learning curve to suddenly then play with a band and, and go, well, uh, my role as a guitarist is different now because I have to think about straight rhythm guitar and straight single-note solos, which I'd never done before. <laughs> Um, and and then you sort of you, you do that for a bit, and then you know I started you know playing um, 
more in a trio, which changed how I wanted my guitars to sound. And then the cigar boxes has been a part of the joy of them is the idea that they're, they're so rudimentary that everything you know yeah. about guitar throw away and you've got, you know, two notes, three strings. Um, <laughs> so the joy is actually ringing some uh, music out of them. And it, it, it's, it, it, it amazes me that people have sometimes said to me, oh, you play blues, that's a bit derivative or did you not get bored? Or, And I think you yeah. just totally have not got it. You haven't got it. You don't understand that there's so many regional styles and blues is such a wide-ranging genre that it seems to me in, in my creative life that whenever you get to one point, you see another hill across the way and you Absolutely. go and climb yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Every everything you learn across your journey of discovering music, or just like feeling different styles, or just like becoming emotionally attached to different sort of st- styles of music, there's always someone like reinventing that, or not reinventing, but you know, perhaps like putting their spin on it. So then it informs another journey. You know, it's 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 such a great. Um, adventure isn't it um as a performer and a listener and i guess we're just getting educated all the time and it's what a great time to be alive in like you know everyone says how youtube's such a great resource um it's it's incredible like it really is um and and you can learn so much you can imagine starting to play guitar now or something i i am yeah, the resources available if you're interested in something is just yeah. amazing. I, I actually remember when I first became a blues fan and, you know, people go, back in the day, I wore an onion on my bank belt, whatever. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it was hard to get hold of these resources. Yeah. And I remember actually at one point buying um, a season's ticket to um, a cinema club, not because I was I was somewhat interested in art cinema, but, the main thing was I saw on their season's program that they had one night dedicated to archival historic footage of blues performers. Oh, and wow. so I, I was going to, I was buying the season ticket just to go <laughs> just that night. night. Yeah, yeah. This is all the stuff probably which would have been um, the material that's all available on the American um, folk revival tours yes. that went to Europe. All They're that, great. a lot of that footage was taken by Europeans, you know, um, and, and, God bless them because that's actually mm. some of the best material we have. It's well shot. It sounds great. Yeah. It's so good. Of those players. But, you know, you can see all that on YouTube. Yeah. And, and, that, and that, is, that is a wonderful resource. But I've got to say that one of the things that's, that for me personally has been really pivotal is, the, is my opportunity to go to America um, so, you know, my first trip in 2003 and then repeated visits because in those visits to um, the home of the blues, I've been lucky enough to meet some of my blues heroes who yeah. I would never have imagined even having a chance to see some, most of these players, let alone meet them, let alone re- record or tour or hang out with them or play with them. So that idea that blues is actually um, an historic traditional style of blues where you have younger players sitting at the knees of the elder statesmen and women of the music and it's passed to you by actually 
listening not only to the music but to the stories and to um, like that respect for elders and listening to those um, older players and having that personal connection to the music and then trying to take, you know, when you're writing in a traditional style, uh, you, you want to be respectful of the frameworks but you also want to try and find your own voice within it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I think the the chance to meet to to meet older players and 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 sit with them has been just um, an incredible experience for me. Can we can we talk about that? Can we? I guess when you first went to the stage, you said what was it? Two thousand and three? Did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Was that on one of those Memphis Blues Challenge? Um, programs or was that just you just going let's go buy some tickets and or how did that all come about well I'd done quite a lot of traveling um in in my youth when you know my early 20s and which is a very Aussie thing to do but of course back in those days I was much more interested in exotic cultures so I went to you know Southeast Asia India you know Nepal, all those kind of places, and then of sure. course onto Europe, and you know find your roots back in in England and Scotland, and America didn't really interest me at all. And then that was then thinking more about about my love of blues. Then it became um, an interest to want to go to America and, and do a blues pilgrimage. But of course by then I actually was a musician, so I was broke. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there lies the problem. Uh, yep. So it was. It was um, winning the right to represent the Melbourne Blues Appreciation Society in Memphis yep. that they sponsored a ticket for me to to go to Memphis to play. So this this is my first trip to America, and it was uh, it was fantastic, you know, because I'd never been to the states before. I went straight to uh, you know I'm here I'm in Memphis. I'm playing on Beale Street, which is hugely historic place for the blues and a place where a lot of my blues heroes would have played back in the day. And the idea that I was, you know, playing my tribute song to Memphis Minnie, aware that she would have played on Beale. Um, And it was... Full circle stuff. Yeah, it was, everything was brand new and I had no idea what was going on and (laughs) I really didn't... um, I didn't have any expectations of the competition because I was just thrilled to be there and I didn't know whether they would, what they would think of my stuff or a lot yep. of my songs had sort of stories attached to them. Would they get my accent? Would they get my sense of humour? Would they yep. think it was uh, appropriating or weird? I don't know. So um, so I just thought, well, all you can do is be yourself. I want to tell about many people try at all. She played guitar just like a man Ooh, imagine that She could play that thing She loved dressing like a lady All them fancy clothes She wore a silver dollar lace And people every place she'd go And one day she rolled back into town With a new car and a national steel guitar the Folks around there would see nothing like it Well, now all life was traveling Any place that she could play Because she sure won't be out in the fields Working every day And I believe her life was hard she loved the blues Man, that gal could play them
you know, then I ended up winning. So then I was the first non-American to win. And that opened, you know, clearly opened yeah. some doors for me to go yep. back um, and and meet people and, and um, you know, the, the preacher, my, my wonderful partner in crime, my husband Steve Clark, who wisely said at the time, uh, well, you know, it's like, you know, Miss America, somebody else wins next year, so you should go back and... <laughs> While you've got a bit of traction, you know, try and, and um, you know, make some connections and meet some people. And so that's what we did. We came straight back and, you know, put ourselves into awesome hock and melted some credit cards and you know, yep. went back for three months and just hung out, you know. Yeah, right. So was that return visit purely for uh, like a bit of a pilgrimage uh, or a bit more of a, a networking tour or or did you have shows to line up um, or did you just purely go there to maybe meet some of the greats from yesteryear who are still, <laughs> still kicking? All of the above. All, all of the above. above. <laughs> uh, so the, um, the irrepressible preacher um, managed to book quite a lot of gigs um, yep. from Australia, you know, from a standing start just by ringing people up and bamboozling them with his He does have a gift to the gap, absolutely. <laughs> Hi, I'm representing an Australian <laughs> blues woman and you need to have a... So, look, we, we ended up doing an astonishing number of gigs. We had a three-month window um, for, for a visa kind of arrangement yeah. where we could go for three months. And um, so, you know, we, we started off, we, we had... Um, mutual friends through Jeff Atchison, you know. So Jeff, um, who sort of uh, Australian guitarist from Melbourne who, who have gone on a, before um, and forged some connections um, were really helpful. So friends of Jeff's in Atlanta, we st- you know, we, we went there, we, we hung out and met a lot of people from the Blues Foundation in Memphis but also from regional blues societies um, you know, and and uh, and I had a dream that it, at the end of this three-month period that I would meet some musicians and somehow do a gig that I would record and I would make an album from it, which I managed to do, um, which was uh, Live in Atlanta, which has just recently become available on digital platforms. album for, for a live gig I had Bob Margolin yeah. playing with me at that gig and and Kaz, Kaz? Kazanoff yeah. from, from Austin, Texas who's um, uh, I didn't know at the time you know was such a well credentialed producer as well as uh, a ranger for the Texas Horns um, and a you know, fabulous player and people said how did and we did a little gig on the outskirts of Atlanta and I actually, I, I flew Bob and and Kaz in and people said, how did you get those guys to play? I said, I just 
just asked him. <laughs> I actually had met Kaz Kazanoff at a, at a blues festival in Portland, Oregon, where I went sure. on to live later. Um, great music scene in, in Portland traditionally uh, for jazz and blues. Um, they, they laugh up there and say it rains so much that you have to be good at, at indoor sports like music. In the <laughs> yeah, right. southwest, you know, Seattle's a bit like that too. Uh, but I, I was at the Waterfront Blues Festival, and you know, I was walking past a little tent that was having workshops in it. A lot of blues people seem to fall. You, you're a guitarist first, but then people fall, often fall into a camp of, do you like harmonica or saxophone? That'll tell you right. a little bit about what style of blues you prefer, you know. Uh-huh. And I would have always said that I was a traditional harmonica type of person but I was walking past this tent and I heard this sax tone and the saxophone was just so compelling that I walked in and I and I sat and listened to a whole workshop on saxophone um which was being run by Kaz Kazanoff and I didn't know Kaz at the time and after the the workshop finished I said look I don't play saxophone but you know I just loved your workshop I just love your tone I love what you know I you know would could we stay in touch? And he gave me a card and we had a lovely conversation. And so then that contact became, he came and played on on the show that became Live in Atlanta. When I then managed to get a record deal with an American label, Yellow mm-hmm. Dog Records, yep. they asked me where yep. I wanted to record and I went, well, hey, I went to Austin, recorded with, with Kaz then as a um, producer for 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 a album. I made a bunch of albums with him and then met people in Austin, Texas through that. So, you know, these all these pathways were often about making personal connections as well as musical connections. Um, Absolutely. And it's been delightful. I've made some really good friends. I think the blues has, has gifted me some lifelong fabulous friendships. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Uh, such a great community of people. Um, everyone who hangs out in the blues scene I've met, especially long-term bluesers or just long-term yeah. players, um, yeah. are generally honest, you know, just happy to help if they can and just just a real great little community. Well, you know, as you were, you know, asking me earlier about how long I'd been, you know, my current place. Yeah. And, you know, at one point uh, Steve and I had lived – the statistics have, have have ramped up since then, but at one point we lived in ten different houses in eight years in two different countries, <laughs> and so we we did you know and I and looking down the barrel of having to move again yeah I was like oh ah, what a what a drag, but the thing is when you have moved a lot and relocated it's like one of the first things you do when you move to a new place is you find out if there is a um a pub that does blues if you find out if there's a local venue you find out the nearest active blues society in your area yeah and you go and find your people and um and that's what what i've done and you know and it's it's great you can often you know um it can be a really good introduction to an area and and certainly in places that I've lived, that's been really important. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have moved around a lot, you guys. It's great. And like you said, every every time you move somewhere new, you you suss out what's going on, where, who to talk to or who to, like just create a good feel-good 
response in your community and and you know, along the way you, you meet some great people and and you hang on to a lot of friendships and yeah definitely it's good for the soul totally so so tell me about your work with Hubert so for those who don't know Hubert was a wonderful guitar player who played with Howlin Wolf through most of Wolf's career he wasn't on every record but he was on the majority of his stuff mm. how, how did you get on to Hubert did you meet him at a festival somewhere because um, I remember I first met Hubert at um, Prairie de Chien, a place called the Prairie Dog Blues Festival. He was headlining and I was happened to be there at the time and managed to catch up with Hubert and he signed like the back of my guitar string packet at the time, you know, like, oh, Mr. Sumlin, yeah. Mr. Sumlin, can you, you know, he's like, oh, boy, you know, where are you from? And we got talking some stories. I, I actually struggled to understand him at the time. Um, <laughs> thick, thick accent. Um, but then I... You know, managed to catch up with him when when you toured him down here in Australia. It's probably mm-hmm. actually one of my musical highlights. I think is being on stage at Blues Fest with you guys, Hubert and Chris Wilson yeah. on a harp, and yeah. Yeah. we did Smokestack, and then we finished that. That was great. I was like unplug- unplugging my guitar, like, and then Chris Wilson's like, "You're not going anywhere. You're staying on stage." And then he just. He just said, um, we're doing evil, one, two, three, four, and just started into the next yeah. song. I was like, wow, that was that was amazing. <laughs> Get to play two, two know, songs I'm... with Hubert and, and Chris Wilson and you guys. It was just so magic. Yeah, that was yeah. definitely one of my musical highlights. Yeah, it's so nice. Hubert was a beautiful gentleman as well as a seminal guitar player, you know, really. He, he wasn't on every Wolf recording. There's a few early ones he's not on and later on there's the two guitars with him and Jody Williams on a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but actually that that tour uh, where we brought him to Blues Fest was when I met Hubert and I couldn't oh, right. believe it because I, I'd actually met um how that came about was I'd met Bob Margolin. Yes. And I'd played with Bob. Uh, Bob played with Muddy Waters for many years. And I'd met Bob and played with him and then invited him to, to this gig, which I recorded for uh, Live in Atlanta for the album I released there. Yeah. And so then we had this idea, oh, we'll bring, we'll release that album in Australia and we'll bring Bob Margolin out to play um, for, you know, and Blues Fest, of course, is, as being one of our biggest festivals, you know, had the the um, the wherewithal financially to, to bring out international artists. Yeah. So we started putting that um, in, into place as an idea and we had that most of the way down the track. And then um, the booker, uh, Bob Margolis booker in the States, got back to us and said, look, we've, uh, we made a mistake. We've double booked Bob Margolin. and he's not available. Oh, would Would you be interested in taking Hubert Sumlin? <laughs> and I was just like beside myself. I was just like I had to pick my jaw up. And went <gasps> because I I remember I still remember the visceral reaction I had to um, hearing as blues fan as a young blues fan hearing Howling Wolf and some of yeah. those tracks like um, Moaning at Midnight and, oh, and Smokestack cool. Lightning and you know, those tracks just going, wow, this is, um, and and I guess I never tried to play that sort of stuff to start with. I I guess as I was um, 
I'm self-taught and I'm, you know, so I was, I found that the acoustic blue stuff a little bit more accessible. I didn't ever think that I would have the, 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 the oomph, you know, sure. a lot of Chicago blues seemed to be at that time to be so muscular and so masculine that, yeah. you know, I couldn't see myself doing a creditable job at it. So I left it alone and I, and, you know, much in the same way as, well, nobody ever told Mississippi John Hurt to get more masculine or tougher, you know. But so there's, there's obviously um, uh, quite a quiet spectrum there. But, you know, I started off doing more of that Mississippi John Hurt sort of stuff. And then I had the opportunity to join a band, so I played with the Mojos, which was for most of its um, history an all-female blues band where we we played more honky-tonk blues, swing, a lot of swing and a lot of New Orleans-y stuff. Um, But really hard, you know, sort of tough Chicago stuff I I hadn't ever really played, although I realise now that a lot of the... Mississippi acoustic blues I was playing, you know, if you just take that, electrify it and put some attitude to it, you've got early Chicago blues. It's just, it's a matter of, um, it is a matter of, of, um, of the attack and the, and the attitude Attitude. and the electrifying of it that makes it that. Mm. But at the time I was a little bit daunted and, and, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to play with Bob Margolin because I thought, well, this, I can really learn something from, from, from Bob because he's he plays the muddy water stuff yes. to a T. He's a real keeper yep. of that style, yep. and so I was looking to you know try and um, ex- expand you know and my musicianship and learn more about this. But then to suddenly go, okay, I'm playing with Bob Margola, at least played with him. How about Hubert? And I went, gee, I have to put together a band and I have to step up and yeah. and uh, I never really played any of that stuff. Sure. Um, and that was part of the reason why, as I put together my first band post my long-term girl band, the Mojos, um, you know, I had Dean Addison on bass, Mark Grundon on drums, who's still drumming with me, and I asked Chris Wilson to play harmonica partly because I thought he would have the incredible uh, personal charisma to sing some Howling Wolf stuff yeah, and and the harmonica, of course, as well. But also because of my deep respect for Chris and his position um, in, in, in the blues world is that he, ha- he, had so m- he had so much stage presence and, you know, 
you know, just if you're going to be on stage, give it all you've got or go home. Yeah. You had that attitude. And I thought Absolutely. if I am suddenly thrown for the first time truly into being a band leader and putting together an act to tour Hubert Sumlin, yeah. I, I surround myself with players that will make me step up to yes. that level yes. and do my very best. And um, so, yeah, it was a huge learning curve and it was wonderful to meet Hubert and find that everyone who who met him says the same, that he was he was kind, he was gentle, he was attentive, he um he was just delightful to hang out with and and um and you know he 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 was not that long out of um he he with it was within a year of him having a lung removed from having lung lung cancer so he was still a little frail i yeah. saw him a couple of years later in back in the states and he was he was not quite so frail but you know it just he could pick up any guitar through anything and this is, you know, people think it's in the pedals or in the something. Oh, no. Whatever he picked up and he played, he sounded like Hubert Sumlin. And, yep. Yep. Uh, you know, idiosyncratic, angular phrasing, just yeah. sometimes weird. Sometimes nothing would happen and you'd wait and then a flurry of stuff would happen <laughs> and you're just like, what? What just happened there, you know? Yeah. But, you know, what a remarkable player and what a remarkable, lovely man. Yeah, and what a, what a heritage and what a pleasure mm. it would have been to share the stage with him for – did you guys tour it as well or did you just do Blues Fest? Is that – No, we, well, we did, we did a, a gig in Melbourne at the Corner Hotel, which yeah. was, you know, which was great. Um, and then we did a gig at the Vanguard in Sydney. Newtown, yeah. Uh, and then we did two shows at Blues Fest. Um, cool. And then that was the only tour dates I did with Hubert, but we caught up again then back in the States several times over the years. And um, one beautiful moment, uh, one beautiful weekend, um, I was about 2006. I think, or seven, uh, I actually, because he, he was often on the road, he was, you know, still touring or living um, out of New York with his manager, but he had a little house in Milwaukee and he contacted me and my friend Suzanne Holmes, who was doing tour management for me at the time um, on one of the tours I was doing over there, and said that he was home in Milwaukee for a weekend and would we come and visit Oh, that's nice. So we just dropped cool. everything, grabbed yeah. tickets and, and flew and went and spent the weekend with Hubert in his home. And um, and that was a really uh, incredible experience because he had he had a lot of memorabilia um, yeah. sort of scattered around. It's only a, little, a modest little house. Mm-hmm. And down in his basement he had stuff set up. He had still, you know, where he liked to use to practice and he had... Um, yeah, he had he had a slot machine at, at his front door. He loved to gamble. <laughs> so he had his own little slot machine. He could just, oh uh, wow! He could, uh, gamble yeah, dimes right. and stuff. And I was, <laughs> and I got to tell you this because this is a bit off told, but it just it, it it encapsulates part of that delight for someone who is a fan first and then a musician. It's like 
I just arrived with Suzanne at, at Hubert's house and he ushered us into his front little front sitting room and we were sitting down and we were just beginning to chat and catch up. And the phone rings and he gets up and he ambles over to the phone. He picks up the phone and goes, oh, hey, Cotton, how you doing? <laughs> James and Cotton. James Cotton is calling just to ring up because he heard that he was home and just ring up uh, their old childhood yeah. friends. He just ring up and say good day. Of course. And I'm thinking... You know, again, James Cotton and some of his, uh, like, 100% Cotton still love that album. You know, like, yeah. these were um, people making music that was really foundation, foundational to my excitement about the genre of music and and it's just, you know, you have to pinch yourself, really. <laughs> yeah, especially in the States. I remember when I was hanging out in Chicago there for a little while. Yeah, the, the people you you just see and you go down to Buddy Guys for the for a Wednesday night, a Monday night jam, you yeah. know, Buddy's there at the end of the bar and then like Kim Wilson comes in and they end up having a play or, yeah, yeah it's just crazy. Yeah, James Cotton was playing at a festival just down the road and it's just insane. Yeah. And, and they're still active. That's what I love about it is um, – you know, it's not like a genre where it's just like flash in the pan, you know, you've 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 made your say at you get. It's like yeah. if if you're in into the music and you're honest and you're performing, it, it keeps you young, it keeps you fresh and you know, energetic and, and it, like I said, it's a social thing. You get to hang out with your mates. It's such a great way to yeah. to spend, you know. As a, as a good red chunk as of your red Payton, as Red Payton from Red's Duke Joint in class on Mississippi would say, the game's for life. Yeah, and you know, I think we're, I think we're we're all we're all aspiring to do Pine Top Perkins if we can. You know, Pine Top recorded with me on my um, Blues Woman album, which was recorded in Austin, Texas, where he was where he was living in his later years. And um, I invited him to to come down the session. He ended up playing on one track. Yeah, and he was ninety six then. You know, wow. um, so yeah. and he was still touring. And, yep. he, and and he's still trying to chat me up, and, uh, and you know it's like I'd like to take you home anyway. But you know he was, and you know he di- he died just you know shy of his ninety eighth birthday, having yep. won um, the Grammy for traditional blues album of the year earlier that year with sure. with him and um, Willie Big Eye Smith. Yeah. Um, yep. So and he 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 still. They still had tour dates on the book. Yep. That's right. <laughs> he's, the, I, he's the poster boy for he's yeah. the poster boy for touring musician for with uh, with bad health habits. He still smoked. He didn't oh, really? he quit drinking. I think he was about ninety, but he still smoked and pretty much lived on McDonald's. Wow. So what can you say about blues plus good genes? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Pine Top, yeah, he was actually. I think I saw him at the Chicago Blues Festival playing there, doing mm. a bit of a Chicago um, All Stars band. Yeah, I think Willie, yeah, guys was there. Um, Calvin Fuzz Jones maybe on bass. Yeah, it was a bit like a bit of a like a muddy yeah. tribute. That was magic. Yeah, it's mm. such a different pool of history there. Like it's such a rich, deep musical culture. Mm. Like it's insane. One time when uh, one year they had. You know, I've been lucky and blessed and honoured to have several nominations in the Blues Music Awards in, in America. Um, and one year they held the awards, uh, it's traditionally held in Memphis, but one year they, the Blues Foundation held the awards in Tunica. And um, and we all went down 
um, after the the day after because they were dedicating a blues trail marker at uh, Hobson's plantation just outside of Clarksdale, which was dedicated to to Pine Top because he grew up there and picked cotton there as a young man. Um, and uh, and as it turned out, I didn't we. We didn't have a car, so we were sort of having to get a ride with someone. We got there and was we we sort of missed the event. Every it was they'd <laughs> unveiled the thing and everyone had gone home. And what was left was actually, um, you know, Pine Top, Hubert, um, Willie Big Eyes Smith, and a couple of other people were all sitting on the front step of the commissary at Hobson's, oh, having great. a drink and smoking yeah. cigarettes yeah. and talking about their. Um, reminiscing about their childhoods and 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 uh, Pine Top was talking about living there as a young man and um, picking cotton and seeing the first tractors. They trialled some of the first tractors at, at Hobson's. And it was, see, you were saying earlier about finding it difficult to understand um, the old Mississippi yeah. black guys when they're talking. Yeah. And I, yeah. I just love the, I love the rhythms. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I love the rhythms of their speech and the way they talk to each other. And sometimes, and that to me, that was a wonderful experience just to sit there in that place with such a sense of, sense of place. Yes. On, um, on a, on a plantation at, at Hobson's out of Clarksdale. And, um, and, and listen to these guys because they would, you know, one of them would make an observation, the other would go, uh, uh, uh. It's like <laughs> half the conversation was just noises, just, I swear. Yeah. But they all, they were all um, telling their stories and, yeah, Yeah, it would have been a moment, total pinch me moment, I reckon, like looking back at it now yeah. going, wow, I'm so glad that that moment, you know, happened and I happened to be there and, yeah, yeah. That's, that's so cool. And of and course, we've lost so many of the old guys and, and, and women, you know. Yeah. I was really just, you know, I was sad that I never got a chance to meet Jessie Mahempel or, or never, you know, hung out with her. Um, but, you know, I have had a chance to go to Como, Mississippi in recent years and I've played her guitar. Oh, wow. Um, which has got a, a bullet hole clear through the top bout. She shot her guitar at one point and... Um, but, oh, so know, she I've, shot I've, it. I've, she didn't get it like bullet hole yeah, while she, she was playing it. it. No, okay. no, no, she, <laughs> she, um, in in her final few years, she played gospel music and she had a stroke and she decided that was that God was punishing her because she'd played blues and so she shot her guitar. Oh. But then she reneged and it still played all right. So she <laughs> <laughs> she kept playing it. <laughs> her battle scar. should die before the daylight comes where would you lay to rest the restless bones a rambler without a home if I should die before the soft first light Would I sail across to...
So tell me about the, the key to the city down in Clarkstar. What how, presented with the key to the city in 2012? Is that... Yeah. Tell me about that one, Fee. That was, um, yeah, lots of stories around that one. It, it, look, it was... It was weird because I, I'd gone to uh, Clarksdale to play it uh, as part of the Duke Joint Festival, which traditionally is very much about local Mississippi players or maybe Arkansas players, players fr- from the region. And although there's always music happening in Clarksdale uh, and they pride themselves on that, um, they have a whole lot of pop-up juke joints as well as the usual places and a whole lot of stages in the streets. There's a lot going on. Um, and that's where I would have seen players like Elsie Ulmo and, and um, uh, Robert Wolfman Man Belfour. I also sure. had a chance to tour and play a little bit with a wonderful local players, um, Sidel Davis. Right. Um, um, so all those kind of players are the players that normally play there, as well as you know the lo- the local Clarksdale guys, and um, so I was kind of pretty chuffed to, to have a gig there, and uh, and I so I was there in town ahead of time, and um, friends said, oh, you must go to the welcome back Aussie reception. <laughs> And I was like, what? The what? And um, in, in one of the streets of downtown Clarksdale, there's an old bank building and they fly the American flag and next to that or just underneath it, they fly an Australian flag. And that's ah. a thing that they do. And it's partly because over the years they've had all, just so many Australian blues tourists yeah. come that it became a bit of a thing to have a welcome Aussie thing at the beginning of, of uh, Duke Joint to to welcome all the Australians. And um, and, I, and I actually, um, and they were doing a special um, in the local paper, the Clarksdale Press Register, and they were asking various Australians, why? Why is this, why do, why is, why do so many Australians go, go to Clarksdale, Mississippi? And the best I could come up with was that there's part of the Australian ethos traditionally that values the character, whether it's the, the larrikin, the outsider, just the character. We like yeah. characters and places like Mississippi and Clarksdale in particular are full of them, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're not coming for the beaches, you know, we're not coming for the, for the scenery. <laughs> but the culture and the people um, are really compelling, you know. So yep. so that, that was my take on it. But anyway, I went, I thought, that I was just, you know, this was just a thing. I'd been invited to go. That sounded good. I went along and um, and I was just going to sort of pop in and then I think I had a gig to go to. And and then in the midst of the proceedings, the um, the mayor at the time, uh, Henry Espy, called, called me out and said, we have a guest of honour this year and this year the keys to the city are going to, you know, Fiona boys. And <laughs> so I was not given a heads up about this. It was completely yeah. unexpected and I was suddenly on the podium saying thank you. Um, but That's I must classic. say that um, it was it was no strain at all to, to string together a quick impromptu speech about the importance of Clarksdale and in, in the scheme of things in blues history and for me personally and it was a great honour and it's, it's on my blues shrine Great. Of memorabilia. 
Excellent. Yeah. That's cool. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I've actually haven't ever dealt um, down that, that part of the States. I'd, I'd love to get down there, maybe take the kids mm. and the family one day and we'll cruise around and check out some of those mm. early areas down in Clarksdale. Yeah, culturally rich areas like that. Totally. I'd love to. Yeah. Have you heard are. Uh, the Black Keys new record? It's not new. They've, they've just brought out a new one. But I think, have you heard the Delta Cream record they brought out? It's no, all, I haven't like, actually. It's all very Junior Kimbrough-y. It's so good. It sounds like yeah. it's recorded down there in a juke joint somewhere. It just sounds great. It's really swampy and I think it even has the slide guitar player from R.L. Burnside's band. Um, is it Kenny Brown? Yeah. Is that his name? Oh, Kenny Brown. Kenny Brown so, yeah. is fantastic. Really, Kenny Brown and, um, you know, he's really interesting because he's local, local white guy that played with all those, yeah. you know, Black Mississippi Hills players, um, and Lightning Malcolm too. Oh uh, yeah, uh, and um, to some extent, even though they're from out of state, um, uh, Reverend Payton's and his um, big damn band, which is basically a duo. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's there's there's still a lot of people carrying on the um, that Mississippi Hills thing, and it's. It's really when you when you go to Clarksdale and you see it's just it's not that far distance wise between um, you know the Delta and the Mississippi Hills and to go to Como, Mississippi, but the, it, it is the, the music is quite different and it's, I found sure. um, exploring some of this stuff really interesting and it's yeah the rhythms the rhythms are different and um, it's it's a really interesting thing to explore. So, Fee, tell me, you've just re-released um, Blues in My Heart. Has it, been, has it been 20 years? Is that the purpose for that? Yeah. I, look, I had an idea that um, bef- this is before the, the pandemic and before we all sort of got locked down. Yep. But I had in the back of my mind my very first album that I made under my own name was Blues in My Heart in 2000, um, and that was recorded by, by Black Market Music in Melbourne um, and it was essentially done live to analog tape. Yep. And um, like yep. a lot of musicians, you know, I've made a lot of albums in the intervening years, and you tend to, um, you know, write new. You know, as you become more of a songwriter, you write new material, you make new albums, you play that, you you know, keep going. And I hadn't revisited that album for a long time, and a, a few years ago, I was on tour in the States and I was staying with Suzanne Holmes. I mentioned her earlier. She'd been doing Uh some tour management. She also owned the club that I recorded Live in Atlanta in. Um, And, you know, we've stayed fast and dear friends all all these years. And um, we we were visiting her. uh, She's living in Florida these days. And and she put the album on. And I actually thought, gee, this, this album really stands up you know I think the the, uh, the performances and everything uh, it's, it's interesting because you often move on and think oh well that old thing yeah no, and I thought dusty well, old thing. Um, and I thought that sowed the seed of the idea that it would be nice to re-release that in 2020 as a 20-year celebration I guess yep. and it made me stop and reflect on how that album was quite pivotal. What you know, what what were the influences and what got me to that recording session, and sure. how did it inform what was about to happen in the next twenty years? 
it was an album which was a, uh, a stepping off point because a lot of that stuff was the material I was going on to play um, a, a few years later at the International Blues Challenge, which got me to America. Which So, so I thought, well, I, I would do um, a beautiful remastering job on that. And then I spent the initial parts of lockdown thinking this album was originally released, essentially a, a limited release in Australia, but now that I have a wider audience, particularly in America, yeah. who, who haven't heard the album where it's never been released there. Um, so I, I signed the album to Reference Recordings, who's been releasing my recent projects there in California. Right. They're a wonderful label. They're not a blues label. They're an audiophile label, mm-hmm. um, and they've been really supportive and helpful and they love um they love information like a lot of audiophile people do they like background so i put together a 24 page booklet to go with the re-release which was really good because i i found you know baby photos of first playing and (laughs) and sort of managed to you know find some archival materials old photos yeah and so it's like a memoir so that like there's like a 24-page potted history of, of, you know, what I was doing. And it was it was great fun uh, researching that yeah. and finding the news and, the, and stuff to go with it. And, and so I had that idea, but I think probably, as it turned out, being in lockdown gave me more time to devote to it. And then that gave me, I released that in 2020. It's actually still in the Australian Blues and Roots radio chart. Cool. Um, nice. So it's been in there for 14 months or whatever. Yeah. And um, But I am plotting and scheming. I, I I have two albums in mind for new stuff. I, I While we were in lockdown and we were all miserable, I wrote an album's worth of fun stuff. It's the party album, which I feel we need, but I haven't yet had a chance to uh, work out when I can record it because it would. I hear it with... Um, with horn sections and a big band and a really fun. Like a New Orleans sort of Louisiana sort of style. Okay. Yeah, up tempo sort of thing. Yep. But in the meantime, um, at the beginning of the year, I was down in Melbourne briefly and uh, normally I, when I record something, I like to be really organised. I, like I like to record really quickly. I like to record live in two or three days. And I, but, I, but I think about what I'm going to do before I hit the studio yep. and my recent projects have been done with a guy called Colin Wynn at 30 Mill Studios in Melbourne and I just love his sensibilities. He used to do a lot of work with Chris Wilson also and um, we just uh, really connected on our sensibilities and so that's been great. But, of course, they were in lockdown a lot in Melbourne. I was in lockdown. I couldn't even. So as it turned out, I I was in Melbourne for, for family reasons and I just went, I don't know what I'm going to do quite, Colin, but do you have a moment? I'm just going to come in and uh, i got Mark Grundon, my drummer. I don't know what we're going to do, Marky, but let's go in. And we just um, recorded a bunch of stuff, more around new stuff I'd done on the cigar boxes. Okay. So what I'm working on at the moment is uh, then straight after that, the studio had to be dismantled and and I'm stuck up here and who knows when I'll get a chance to finish it and mix it and stuff. But I think that that will probably be the next release, which will be more around um, a kind of minimal, a lot of funky percussion chains and cool. on chains dropped onto washboards and yep. homemade percussion cigar boxes, yep. a lot more informed by some of my Mississippi influences. 
Great. I think that'll be the next thing, whatever it is. Mark enjoying that as well, like really sinking his teeth into that sort of style of percussion. Um, And did I see you you doing some recording with Jeff Lang as well? Because he's got a studio at his place. Yeah, well, see, we did this initial recording with Colin Wynn and and as I said, I did that quick session and um, he, he'd been in a space for decades and suddenly had to move. So he was in right. the midst of trying to rebuild his studio elsewhere. So just recently I was down in Melbourne and I'd been listening to the original tracks and as I said, most of the things we were doing were kind of either new songs, um, reasonably off the cuff and some of it not with drums, just with, you know, uh, we've only got we've only got half an hour left. Chuck up some congas and a tambourine, you know, and I'll. <laughs> yeah. So and there was just a couple of things where I thought I can hear this with a bit more kick drum or some percussion, or you know, there was there was about three or three or four tracks where I could hear more percussion, yeah. and uh, and Colin's studio is not yet rebuilt. So he said, "Well, look, how about you go, you know, and and spend." And we literally just spent like a couple of hours at Jeff's, which cool. was really fun. Jeff Lang, of course, is a mate as well, and he's uh, got sonic antennas that are from another planet. And uh, <laughs> and we got we got in there, and I said I, my instructions to um, to to Mark was on one track was just I just hear more trash on this. I, I just want one more percussion part with more trash. Yeah. And he said no worries. We went out to his car, came back with a rubbish bin lid which he drilled holes in and put bolts through. I like rivets, yeah, he, right. He yep. also had, he had his electric drill with him. So he drilled a <laughs> hole in that, popped it so that it would go onto his hi-hat stand, Perfect. got some mallets out yeah. and started experimenting <laughs> with that. So anyway, this is this is the kind of sonic hijinks we Excellent. got up to, but it was a, it was a lot of fun. I look forward yeah. to hearing, hearing snippets of that. Absolutely. Mm. Well, Fee, I reckon... We might look at wrapping it up in a minute, but before we do, I want to just talk quickly about guitars because there might be a few mm-hmm. guitar listeners out there. Hopefully there's a few people out there listening. Your number one 68 Telecaster. Tell me, mm-hmm. how did you find that guitar and what is it about that guitar that you, I guess, became one with or, or what was the attributes of that particular guitar that really inspired you to get? Okay. The master sound. Cause you, to, you had that to, built afterwards, right? You had that sort of modelled after, like yeah, the yeah. neck profiles and stuff. So yeah, yeah. The um, the sixty eight tally came about, and I actually bought that on spec from someone. I can't even remember where I got it from, um, but I bought it maybe at the music, maybe at the swap shop, which is still an iconic place to buy yeah. secondhand gear in Melbourne. I you know I started off playing acoustic guitar. I didn't own it. I, I won an acoustic guitar in a talent competition. The story's all in the liner <laughs> notes of the reissue of Blues in My Heart. But you know, so yeah. I had an acoustic guitar, and really, when I joined the Mojos, I needed an electric, and I borrowed various guitars. And I, for for the initial period, I played um, a Les Paul copy. It was a plywood thing. It was not doing any favors, but I was so underconfident. You know, and I think this is a real issue for women too. And again, I, hopefully things are changing. But for me, I was finding that, you know, I'd go to a guitar um, exhibition and you, people would just treat you like you didn't exist. They would take guitars yeah. out of your hands or tell, yep. ask if you knew how to plug it in. And, yep. you know, you often got a lot of discrimination at a guitar shop walking in. You know, if you were asking for certain strings and they didn't have them, they'd say, oh, well, look, what does he want them for? He could have, why don't you get these <laughs> strings for him? And you go, no, no, they're actually for me. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I think I, I had a lot of those kind of experiences. 
this guitar that I borrowed and I was playing was stolen. So I ended up literally having gigs with the mojos and having no no guitar. And I and I was borrowing guitars for each gig and I played all sorts of really inappropriate things <laughs> um, because I was just, you know, getting through and, and having to work out what it was that I wanted. Um, yeah. And I came across this old tally and I went, this is it. For, for starters, I just want a, one volume and one tone. Yes. Uh, I want something uncomplicated. I want something that is like a blank canvas. And I think that's what a telly often is. It's just like, it's, it sounds different in different people's hands, but it's just basically an honest plank of wood. And I, I liked, uh, at that time I was a little bit confronted by electric sound. So I couldn't, I couldn't go to the back pickup, but the neck pickup was all right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I, you know, I went more mellow sounds to pokier sounds as I got more confident. Sure. But I like the feel of the neck. I like the tension of that scale length. Uh-huh. And I liked that the idea of the heat of battle, you didn't have a whole lot of knobs, tone and volume. Yeah. And as it turned out, that was my go-to main guitar for many, many years. I was playing a Maiton acoustic and at one point Maiton approached me and said that they were messing around with a, with electric builds and they would like to build me an electric guitar and they were they were sort of messing around with launching or relaunching their master sound electric range. So I went in to play one and I didn't like it. And and it was so this was a learning curve for me. Mm-hmm. I've never been particularly heck headed. But what I discovered with that was that I didn't like it how it felt. It felt too bendy. Now sure. what I learned out of that process was that it was because it was originally designed as a short scale instrument. Like a Gibson scale. And yep. Yeah, and I didn't, and Pat Evans, who who designed it, was quite adamant that that's the scaling that should have. And yeah. I went, look, if you're <laughs> going to build me one, can you soup up the pickups um, and can you um, give me a scale length that's to the same as my, my old uh, my old Fender Telly? Yep. And so I want a long scale and, you know, so anyway, um, and they said afterwards, you know, that this experience of, of building things for working players is actually really useful because of the feedback that they get. And so they built my Master Sound, which was one of, if not the first, one of the first long scale ones they made. Yep. And because it was at the Maiton factory for a few weeks before I could get around to coming and picking it up, various people played it and liked it. The upshot of that was that it they ended up making production runs of long scales as well as short scales. Oh, great. Cool. Um, but the long scale one, one of the other things I wanted, I said, look, if you're going to build me a guitar, I love my telly. I love my old telly. So if, if you're going to build me a guitar that I'm going to actually play, we need to think about making it do something different from what the telly does. Sure. So what I said to them was that I want a guitar that, is rigid enough for the to finger pick on, bendy enough to be electric with a lot of bottom end um, because the Telecaster is wonderful, but the nature of a Telecaster is that the sound is thinner. So what I found was that the Telecaster is great in a bigger ensemble because it'll cut yes. through. Yeah, Man, it's got its frequency range. Yeah. Frequency range there. But the master sound has a bigger tonal range mm-hmm. and I ended up getting that guitar and the first time I really, the first tour I played it on, was the tour with Hubert. 
with oh, him at some really? point playing Chicago stuff, the smaller ensemble just with guitar, bass, drums and harmonica. Sure. And the fatter bottom end and the richer sound of that instrument was perfect. And it was and yet it, it could be it could be mellow and it can be rude. Yep. And it ended out really setting me up to to where I've come now. That guitar made a huge difference to the way I play. And it's like I can it's my go-to guitar now. If if sure. I only can take one guitar, I'll take the Master Sound because it's rigid enough. I can play finger picking stuff on it, and I can play Mississippi Hill stuff on it. Yes. And mo and like most um, electric guitars, if you try and play finger picking stuff on it, it doesn't have enough bottom end to hold. And yet that that instrument does. Do you think that comes from string gauge, string height, or like pickup? Outputs or the you know the certain tone of the of the pickups, or do you think it's a, a wood wood choice, or do you think it's a combination of everything, or like how how do they come to that rich low end? I think it's a combination of everything. I know that it has got it has got um, hotted up Elnico pickups. Mm-hmm. Um, and are they mate pickups or are they um, they got? You can you can split them from single coil to oh, yeah. to humbucker. Although, again, to be honest, I'm not particularly techy. It's just like I know what I like. I like that yep. sound. But, uh, <laughs> so I don't do a lot of I don't do a lot of messing with it. I do change. Uh, I tend to use it, um, it. It has, you know, neck, middle, and and back yep. selectors. I tend to use it in the middle. Although I do occasionally use the um, the back pickup setting. Yep, um, sting. And the other thing is that originally the original master sound design had three pots and I got them to rewire it to just be one volume, one tone, like a telly. Excellent. Which left me with a hole in the scratch plate for many years and I ended out, um, I'm going to hold this up for you, uh, <laughs> even though nobody at home can see this. I'm going to describe it. But this instrument now. Oh, it's good. You've got a coin on there, don't you? Pickup. Yeah. It now has uh, an American silver dollar, and that's dollar. Uh, an original 1935 American silver dollar, which my husband Steve bought for me as um, congratulations, uh, good luck charm. He bought it in a secondhand store in Memphis the day after I won the International Blues Challenge in 2003. Great. And that was a reference to a song that I have about Memphis Mini. Memphis Mini famously had a, a silver dollar bracelet that she wore in a lot of her publicity oh, photos right. and I referenced that in some lyrics to a song about her that I wrote and so Steve said oh here's a little nod to Memphis Mini here's a silver dollar and so now that silver dollar is set into my favourite touring <laughs> guitar as an ongoing nod oh, to Memphis Mini the girl guitar player of her generation. That's fantastic. I love it when a bit of personality seeps into people's instruments they don't just pick up a you know thing from the shop and just I like, if, yeah, a few little modifications. I think that's nice, a few personal touches, and to have yeah. a gift like that, that's great. Um, mm. Well, Fee, I just noticed my kids walking in the door and they're going to interrupt this podcast with lots of kid noises and I'm hungry, dads. So yeah. so let's leave it there. Um, it's been great hanging out and having a chat and yeah. all the best yeah. and hopefully we get to catch up again soon. Okay. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. Cheers, Fee. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening, folks, to another episode of Say It With Guitars. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it around to your mates, leave a good review, and hopefully we'll see you next time.